Is creativity something you value in the work that students produce? In this episode, we discuss ways to spark, motivate, and support creativity. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Natasha Hognes and Martin Springborg. Natasha has served in faculty and curriculum development at the Academy of Art University and as an adjunct professor at the California College of the Arts. Martin is the Director of Teaching and Learning at Inver Hills Community College in Dakota County Technical College. Natasha and Martin both contributed to the Pedagogies of Care Project and are two co-authors with Hogue Holmgren of Meaningful Grading, a Guide for Faculty in the Arts. Welcome, Natasha and Martin. Good to see you. Yay. Thanks for having us. Our teas today are, I'm drinking coffee this morning. Always, always the rebels. Well, I had my two cups of coffee and now I am on to wild sweet orange tea. And it's delicious. Good. Yeah. I have iced Scottish afternoon tea. Afternoon, huh? And I am drinking tea forte, black currant tea. We've invited you here today to discuss Natasha's contribution to the Pedagogies of Care Project and your joint work on meaningful grading in the arts. Natasha, could you start by telling us a little bit about your contribution to the project? Sure. Nurturing the aha moment is the topic of the video made, and it was based on one of the tips in the Meaningful Grading book that I co-authored with Martin and Hogue. This video focuses on the aha moment or that moment of insight in the creative process and how to really nurture students and invite them into that moment. I focused on the aha moment, which could also be called the moment of insight in the creative process, because it really is associated with kind of joy and happiness and magic. And there are a lot of cultural myths around insight and creativity in general, but especially these magic moments. People think they come out of the blue, that they're come down from God, that they're somehow related to some innate ability. And research shows us, and people who are creative practitioners know that this is not entirely true. So I just decided to kind of hone in on that moment. In my work at the Academy of Art University, I have worked with a lot of students and a lot of instructors who are often drawn to creative fields because of the joy, and they really want to engage in that, the joy of the creative process. But then when the students get to school and when the new instructors come to teach, they often get really drained and they find that there's so much hard work and there's so much stress in the classrooms, even in things like painting and graphic design and movie making classes. Students seem to get really run down and they don't connect with those moments of joy. So this results in frustration at my own school. We're seeing pretty high dropout rates of students at a certain point. And I actually ended up working with at-risk students in my role as the Research Center Director at the Academy of Art University many years ago. And that taught me a lot about working with students and engaging them in their creative process. 
a lot of the students I worked with, they were sent to me by an instructor who would say, this student is just not engaging. They're really sloppy in their work. They're really lazy. They're not putting the time in. And when I talked with those students, I would find patterns that really ultimately meant that they weren't understanding their creative process. They were doing things like brainstorming a whole bunch of ideas and then trying to finish one, but then getting distracted and thinking, ah, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm going to do this other project. I need to take this other approach. And they would go down another path and then they would abandon that path and they would take yet another approach. And pretty soon it's time to go to class and the project they're presenting for critique looks like it was done at the last minute. Again, this is really frustrating for the student and the instructor. And I realized I needed to learn a lot more about the creative process in order to work with these students and help them connect to that joy, help them understand how the hard work connects with the joy and help the teachers understand how the hard work connects with the joy. I think it's really imperative that our faculty understand creative process and define it so we can teach it to our students. And this is especially important for students whose livelihood depends on creativity, like a game designer, a graphic designer, even an illustrator can't just go to work and hope that insight comes. They need to learn how to have some control over that, not only for their own work, but just so that they continue to enjoy what they're doing. It sounds like part of the problem is that people think that creativity is just something that people either have or don't have. And they don't see that it involves a process that includes a lot of work. What types of things can we do to nurture students in making the connection between the work that they do and that aha moment to get them to that point so we don't lose them on the way? One thing that I talk about quite frequently with faculty, no matter their discipline, but especially in the creative fields, and one thing that we go back to quite a few times in meaningful grading is rewarding failure and grading process versus grading that final product. If you value the development of a creative process and you value your students diving into the waters that are sort of murky, they cannot be afraid to do that. And at the same time, they should also be aware that you're rewarding that effort and their engagement. And what can be kind of a scary process for them, especially if they consider themselves non-artists or unable to do art because they don't have some innate knowledge of it. So as you develop grading systems, making sure to work into those grading systems, those things that you truly value about that process and about your course. I think it's really crucial and something that I try to point out in the video is just breaking it down, scaffolding the process for them, breaking it down into small, accomplishable steps and explaining to them, no, this is not creativity. This is not your whole project. This is what you need to do now. And here's what you need to do. And you need to put the work in to do it. And then you can move on to the next step. I think that's really important. And it's just really important for the instructors to do that. We often have the overview. We understand the process. We have faith that they're going to get there, but the students don't necessarily. And so that's kind of what leads to those patterns of procrastination that we see with the students who aren't doing so well. They put things off. They don't understand the importance of that early hard work that you really have to just put in in order to get the payoff at the end. What are some ways that you recommend building in experimentation or risk-taking into the grading system? Because those are often things that we value in creative fields, but are harder things or things that we don't always build into our evaluation systems. We might focus more on the principles of design or something technical <laughs> because those are easy to measure. You're a graphic designer, aren't you, Rebecca? I am. <laughs> I think graphic design is actually a really great example of a place where you can get really bogged down with rules, right? I mean, you can approach graphic design almost as a mathematician and just kind of go, and you can create stuff that follows the rules, but doesn't really have a lot of creativity to it. 
And I guess one piece of advice, this goes to a recommendation that I've included in the video, but really simplifying criteria. Again, if you can break down the steps and have each step just be assessed on one or two criteria, that allows students to kind of say, okay, I've met the goal. Now I can do what I want. I've done what that teacher needs to see and I'm going to pass. <laughs> and now I can really play with it. In some research that I did with a colleague at the Academy of Art University quite a while ago, we did this big study twice, actually, called Student Perceptions of Rubric Effectiveness. We found a common pattern in students' responses. The students that really liked the rubrics said that they liked the rubrics because it told them exactly what they did have to do. And then once they checked off all those boxes, they could just run with it. And that was very freeing to them. We can talk later that rubric is not always perceived that way. But for some students, it kind of acts like a creative constraint. But I think if we can keep the criteria to a minimum, that can allow students to know what they have to do and then have fun with it. One of the things I notice in reading through your book and also in what you were just talking about in terms of giving students scaffolding is so much of the advice that you give could apply in pretty much any discipline. While your focus is on the arts, students don't have the same expertise that we do. And the tasks that they're facing are much more challenging and require much more processing. And they don't always come in with that growth mindset. Much of what you're talking about, basically, is how to help students move from this binary view that they're either good at it or they're not to recognizing that learning is work and that they can get better as they develop. And it was nice to see how closely this was aligned to the advice we try to give in so many disciplines. I totally agree. John, and actually, I was in a conference at the University of Missouri where they actually viewed this video. And the person who was facilitating the workshop that I was lucky enough to be able to attend from the comfort of my own home office here, she's a scientist. And she actually put up a map of the scientific method and said, this is the creative process. And this is not the exclusive domain of artists and designers by any stretch of the imagination. So I love having those cross-disciplinary conversations. I actually teach writing and ESL. And so I see some crossover there. I guess I'm just reluctant to offer a lot more advice to teachers of physics and math and economics and things like that, simply because I don't have as much experience with those instructors. I've been at exclusively art and design schools for a really long time. Martin, maybe you can speak to that. You have a lot more majors at your colleges. Especially in those foundational courses, you certainly get students coming in at a variety of levels. So they have past experiences or they don't. And those with past experiences sometimes come in with quite a bit of knowledge or experience in the arts. So they've had a lot of high school experience, for example. That puts them at a different level than the other students in your class that are truly beginners and don't have any prior experience and consider themselves very much non-artists. So one thing that's important to do, just getting to the practical here, if you're in an arts course or teaching at that foundational level, or really going back to your comment about this crosses disciplines, no matter what discipline you're in, if you're teaching that foundational level course, getting everybody at that same base level at the beginning. Purely speaking from past experience here on this one point, I taught photography for about 20 years. And in my intro courses, I would frequently have students come in that had high school experience and they had learned something and could demonstrate that thing. But at the same time, they learned it in a, I'm not going to say the wrong way, but in a bad way. They picked up some poor practices from their previous education in that. And so you have to make an effort to untrain that a little bit and get them to that same process that you want everybody to engage in at the very beginning level. So that step and that effort also 
also makes those students who are truly coming in as beginners and don't have any previous experience realize that, oh yeah, this is something that I actually have to learn and that everybody has to learn. And these students who come in with previous knowledge, it's not just some inherent skill or ability that they have in the arts. Another thing that I found really helpful in sort of leveling the playing field and making it apparent to those truly beginning students is using my past beginning students who have come into my courses with no experience, using their products as exemplars when I'm talking about how I want somebody to do something. So if I'm talking about an assignment, I'm using examples from, and I'm pointing out the fact that these students came in from, like, say, they're nursing students or they're automotive students, or this student came in with zero knowledge, and this is the thing that they produced, and it's actually an ideal example of what I want you to produce in this assignment. So using that and going back to those examples shows those students who come in as true non-native or true beginners that that level of achievement is possible. I think that was an interesting point, too, that also shows up in other fields. I know people teaching computer science often will note that it's much easier to teach people who are true beginners than those who have been self-taught or perhaps picked up something in a course where perhaps not an optimal pathway was given to them. The importance of unlearning things, perhaps, or breaking down the structures that people have and replacing them with stronger structures can be as much of a barrier as people who are struggling just to get to that initial level. And that, I imagine, is particularly true in the arts. Yeah, and going back to what I mentioned earlier about valuing process, maybe they do produce a product that's roughly the same result, like if they come up with the same result, but the process that they engaged in to get to there is so much more complicated and convoluted than what you're trying to get everybody to engage in. So they do need to go back and learn process. They do need to be at that same level as everybody else in your course. One of the issues that often comes up in discussing creative fields is the importance of intrinsic motivation. Could you elaborate a bit on how we can help develop intrinsic motivation for students in these fields? So another thing that we talk about or that we bring up in Meaningful Grading frequently is the building of a community in an arts classroom and how important that is. That community is the intrinsic motivator. For example, if you make that a primary goal of yours in a course, you would then grade heavy on participating in that community at the beginning knowing full well that the goal you have is to make that a more intrinsic reward for students and to back off on the grading or drop it altogether, the participation component, so that they not only learn that after they leave your course and after they leave an arts program, that an arts community is vital. Like you can't develop work in some sort of vacuum. As an artist, you have to be engaging with others. But also within your course, it's just showing them and it's creating that intrinsic value. Like, What's bringing me back to this class day after day is not the grades that I'm getting from my instructor, but the vast resource that I have in these 30 other classmates that are able to give me feedback and support and that also show me what they're working on, that give and take. So that's one example of building in that intrinsic value. Correct me if I'm wrong, Martin, but a huge part of that community is critique. It's critique discussions, right? Hours and hours of it. And helping students to understand that just getting that conversation, it doesn't even have to be feedback, but a conversation and engaging people to talk about your work does build intrinsic motivation. That's the big payoff that we're working towards. And if you don't have that tight community in that class, when you get to the middle or the end of that class, when you really want students to be engaging honestly in critique, it's going to be like pulling teeth. 
you have to foster that community so that students feel comfortable, that they can open up, they can give opinions about others' work and accept opinions about their own work. I kind of want to get into a little bit of that intrinsic, extrinsic motivation research. And I guess one of the things that got me into this field and my obsession with grading and creativity, which people kind of look at me when they say, you talk about grading in art school, shame on you. But the thing that was so confusing for so many of these at-risk students that I worked with before was they were engaging in those conversations or they thought they were with their instructor and their instructor would say things like, yeah, you know, you're doing great, keep going. And that can mean keep going, you gotta keep working, but you're not there yet. But the student was hearing it as, yeah, I've done it. Good enough, right? And so that student would say, I got a D plus. I don't understand. Like, what's going on? The teacher likes me. Or the teacher said, I was doing great. And so they weren't able to suss out the actual evaluation in those conversations, especially these new students. So this is where it is so important to actually have grading systems that align with those conversations and that reflect those conversations. Keith Sawyer, he is like the creativity guru who I follow. He's amazing. He wrote this book called Explaining Creativity. And there are a couple of pages in this book, Explaining Creativity, where he does essentially a synopsis of all the research on the effects of reward and grading on creativity. And there's some things that we can look at here that are kind of important that yes, we can extinguish intrinsic motivation with grades. We can do it by giving A's for everyone. (laughs) We can do it by just throwing grades that are completely unconnected to the actual conversations we're having in class. And we can do it when we grade students and use a whole lot of really judgmental language and convey that judgment. That will all really decrease intrinsic motivation and creativity. But a lot of that early research on intrinsic extrinsic motivation goes back to the Edward Deci studies, I believe. And he actually did more work on this later. And there's a more nuanced conclusion that he came to later that when grades and rewards are perceived as information, when these grades and rewards are based on the quality of work that students are turning in, that can actually enhance creativity and it can really build intrinsic motivation. But even when you're using grades well, they shouldn't be emphasized too much. This is a conversation that I often had in faculty development when I was working with new teachers. Oh, come to class, you'll get five points. Five points. That's not why you come to class. You should not be coming to class to get the five points. You should be coming to class because the conversations are important. That's why we want you here. And just changing the script in how we talk about grades. You need to have a grading system that has a lot of integrity, but we should not be banging that over our students' heads all the time. It should be kind of in the background, just running along in the background. And what we communicate to students is the intrinsic rewards of all the work that we're having them do. And that's why your grading system has to transform a little bit over the course of a semester. Going back to that grading heavily on participation at the beginning of the course, Well, you have to get the students to the course to participate in the beginning for them to realize that there's value in those conversations. If nobody shows up, they aren't going to have conversations, but then that can change and it can evolve over the 16 weeks or 10 weeks or whatever length your course is. Yeah. And there are those students who really do care about grades. I find at art and design school, there are a certain subset of students who really don't care and that's fine. (laughs) And so they're kind of on their own path and they're often doing well. But there are those students who really care and there are the students who are on the verge of failing out of school. So they have to care. And I find that just understanding that 
instructors need to leverage that knowledge to convince students to do stuff that we want them to do that we know will do them good anyway, <laughs> right? So if I say, okay, you're going to be really grade grubby, you want an A, do these things, and they're the things that they need to do anyway, it's a way of kind of tricking them into doing what we want. So if you're grading what's important in your course, it's going to work out. It's going to work out for the students who really care about the grades, for the ones who don't as much. Hopefully, they'll just be intrinsically motivated and they'll understand why they need to engage. But grading what's important is really crucial in that, I think. One of the things we've talked a bit about is scaffolding and helping provide structures. So if we were to provide structure for faculty who are thinking about the idea of building a grading system that has the values that we're talking about, things that really they care about or are important to their class, what are some of the steps you would recommend they go through to actually develop that system so it actually does reflect the values that they want? Well, my answer to that is <laughs> it's ultimately working towards a rubric. And again, that can be kind of a bad word. I'm the one who's been walking around the art and design school for 25 years saying, let's build rubrics and let's do normings. And <laughs> I had a photography teacher tell me one time, Natasha, you got to understand when you say norming, to an artist. I mean, that's like that, you know? So I'm like, ah, oh, sorry. There's a reason why we don't have assessment in the title of our book. Yeah. That was on purpose. It was by design. Absolutely. For the really grade averse instructors, I start with a conversation and I usually start with grading because that's a really good entryway. And I'll just say, what are you teaching? And what does that look like? And what does it look like when a student does it? And what does it look like when a student doesn't do it? And really, that's where you start. And then I think the next step is really getting real student work in front of this instructor or this department or this cohort of instructors who are teaching the same course, different sections of the same course. They need to look at the student work and they need to say, well, yeah, that one meets the criteria for this course. That doesn't. Why? Why not? Having those conversations, that's like the best investment that I think any department or any instructor can make into really focusing their teaching and to improving assessment is just think about how you're making what you teach visible. And then what does it look like when it's acceptable and when it's not acceptable, when it meets the goals and when it doesn't meet the goals. And then it just moves on from there. And if what you think is important, the quality of the color print in your poster or the resolution on your screen of your logo or whatever the heck you're talking about, it might be process. So again, what does that look like? Well, I want to know that they're listening to the feedback and really taking it in. Well, how can we make that visible? Maybe I have them do a little recording or do a short paper saying, here's all the feedback I heard and here's how I responded. Joey told me I should change the concept, but I didn't like that idea because, so I'm not going with that. And actually have them make that thought process visible. So it takes some, again, creativity on the part of the instructor in the field of the teaching and learning. But usually if there's something really important that you're teaching, you can have a way to make it visible and figure out what you're looking for. And what does it look like when there's evidence that the student has done what you need them to do? And what does it look like when that evidence is not there yet? I usually meet with new faculty and generally ask them, what would they like to see workshops on? And about six or seven years ago, one thing that was requested was a workshop on evaluating creative work. So I reached out and we got four people from different departments. We had someone from art, someone from music, someone from theater, and someone from English. And they put together a presentation of how they evaluate creative work. And one thing that was in common was they all used 
rubrics. And they all talked about how there are certain fundamental skills or processes that students have to follow. And that's what they embed in the rubrics. And it surprised a lot of people in STEM fields who were attending because they were much less clear about what they were expecting from students. And they expected something that would be much less well-defined. And so one of the things they also emphasize, and you've talked about, is that it's telling students exactly what they're expected to do and what types of things they need to demonstrate in the work before they can embellish on that. And that was a really important feature in all their discussions. The same arguments show up in your book. That surprised many people outside of the creative fields. Oh, those are my tribe. (laughs) That warms my heart to hear that, John. That's exciting. Yeah. One of the added benefits of using rubrics is that time saved as well. Faculty time is a precious commodity. And if you can convince them or just show them how much time will be saved by simply having that rubric available and using it as a guide as you're going through the assignments that are piled on their desk, it's a convincing argument. So we've talked a lot about building in values into our evaluation system. Can you talk about some of the things we should avoid doing? I can speak to that a little bit. So one thing that I've seen a lot of arts faculty members do from a student perspective, so coming up through the arts, one thing I've seen a lot of and heard stories about is the instructors bringing their personal bias, their own career and background, and that subjectivity in general to the process of evaluating student work. So I've heard some pretty bad horror stories about that. For example, I'll just go into one story quickly, because I think just every faculty member who's hearing this should know that this is never something that you want to repeat. So all the work, as you can imagine, all the prints lining the board during critique, and the instructor just, without words, just going across the board, pulling work down, and throwing it out the window. Like, if he doesn't like it, right? If it doesn't meet his criteria, which are a mystery, by the way. I've been in those classrooms. I've seen that. Tell non-arts people about these stories, and they're like, no. Yeah, it really happened. So remembering that, you got to check your personal bias and your personal preference for art at the door and rely a lot on or more on having students engage in self-evaluation. Like, do they feel like and how do they feel like they have made this or communicated this through their work, this issue that they think is important through their work. And if it doesn't, like if you're not understanding, then engage in a conversation about it, like how they feel they're getting there and and where you think they're not getting there. So using that as a starting point instead of your own, I am the authority on art, and this is why this does not work. That's a huge demotivator. I think one of those biases that a lot of faculty might bring to the door is the history of white art created by white individuals. This is the history of art. It's all white male. If students are creating their work from different cultural perspectives and the faculty member is not up to speed on other cultural perspectives, we're enforcing essentially a white supremacist point of view and system. So how do we engage in those moments in a way that's productive, especially if we don't understand the cultural background that something's based on? Yeah, if students can't place themselves in the history that you're talking about, you're referring to, how are they to imagine themselves in that world in the future? I'm going to offer just one little tip here because, yes, I hear you, Rebecca, and we see it everywhere and the overwhelming influence and sort of self-perpetuation of the white colonialist culture, even in our art classes. Something that we found when we did our rubrics research was that students in general really love rubrics. It helps guide their work. 
But what they really loved, even more than the grid of language, was samples, examples of work, examples of work that span the quality. Here's an example of something where somebody tried really hard, but they didn't quite hit the mark. Here's some examples of passing work. Here's some examples of work that really hits it out of the park. And it's really important not to have one example, especially in a creative field, because what happens then? The students who are not very confident will copy. Here's an opportunity to allow for many different interpretations and really show those to your students. Consider using student work from previous semesters from a diverse range of students with diverse content. And that gives students something to connect to. It helps them see themselves in the class. It helps them understand that you as an instructor see them and value them. And that even though you have these criteria, there are many ways to reach those goals and reach those marks, those criteria that you're putting out. And so by including a range of examples too, from different genres or different approaches so that it does not become just a Western culture, perhaps. In recent podcasts we've done with Kevin Gannon, we talked about decolonizing your syllabus and just suggesting that when you're putting together your syllabus or searching for examples or exemplars, you could just do a little Google search on decolonize your insert subject matter here, syllabus. And you can often find some good discussions of that with some good resources that you can build in. Yeah. Yeah. This is incredibly important. In my work at California College of the Arts, there's a very active group of instructors there working on decolonizing the classroom, anti-racist pedagogies. And I've learned a lot since I've been teaching there. I haven't been there for a very long time. But I guess there's a book called Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, Teaching and Assessing Writing for a Socially Just Future by Asao Inoue. And he speaks quite a lot about assessment. And the point he makes about assessment is he says, in order to really decolonize your classroom, we need to be careful how we talk about quality because quality so often is really culturally loaded. It's so loaded that it is really hard for us to even untangle what we see and what we look for. And as a response to that, he really emphasizes grading on labor, grading on the work. And this, again, relates to some of the topics that are in this little video I put together, although I don't really call it this. By telling students and taking all that quality judgment away from your rubric and from your assessment and just saying, create 50 of these things, <laughs> make 50 taglines, make 50 photographs, write five different thesis statements for your paper or write five different opening lines for your paper and just do that. And that's the way of just asking for labor. You're just saying, do this work. And it doesn't have to look a certain way or be a certain way. But if you just put some effort into this, you will do well. This is a way of assessing work that actually pans out much better for students of color, students from cultures that are not traditionally represented very well in the faculty at colleges and university. So this is something I've been really taking to heart a lot. And in my writing class, I've actually, at CCA, where I teach freshman composition to non-native English speakers, everything is graded on pass, not passing yet. And so that really emphasizes the labor. If they're not passing yet, the implication in that not passing yet grade is that you will do it again. Just do it again. Do it again. No, it's still not quite right. Do it again. There have been a few students who have redone their essays four or five times, and it's painful. But wow, they learn. They learn. And again, the trick is in not having five pages of criteria, but having a pretty narrow band of criteria that we're looking for here that doesn't get real niggly about the quality 
it sounds like it's a specification grading system that you're using, and it's also building in something much more explicit than the keep going message that can be misinterpreted. So giving students the opportunity to try something, to not quite get there, but to encourage them to continue working on it more explicitly than perhaps students always hear. And I'm glad you mentioned specifications grading. Linda Nilsson has been a huge influence on the way I think about teaching and grading. She's got a lot of really good thoughts out there for sure. One of the things that's really easy to evaluate is something that's technical that has a right or wrong answer. How do we evaluate in a rubric format things that are more qualitative, like the amount of experimentation or risk-taking or other things that we might value in terms of creativity? Can you give us a concrete example? Actually, we have a whole tip in our book about risk-taking. There's some really interesting ideas about ways you can really force students into making some mistakes and talking about them. There's so much that comes up that seems at first like it's going to be really hard to describe in a rubric. But again, if we just get instructors and people who teach these disciplines together talking about things, usually they can come up with something much more concrete, even if it's not a cut and dry technical skill. Concept is one. And I have some examples of like before and after for rubric wording. And often when we first write out a rubric, we might use some really floppy language, like the concept is sloppy. It's lazy. It just doesn't work. That just doesn't work. right? And so that might be the first draft. But then you start looking at some student work and talk with your colleagues and you'll find some more precise language will come out. Often when we talk about concept, I'm talking about the context of maybe an advertising campaign. But the concept is predictable. That's a concept that is not acceptable. It's predictable. It's the first thing that comes to mind when people think of this product. So that is not a good concept. So there you go. Now we've made something a lot more understandable to the students and to the instructors when they're using this rubric to grade later. And it can help you move forward in a way that that judgmental language won't. It just makes the students feel bad. It makes the teachers frustrated because we're like, ah, it just doesn't work. But actually taking the time to look again at a range of work that doesn't meet or that does meet the expectations for this thing that seems really nebulous at first, usually you can manage to articulate it. And if you can't, then maybe that's not something you're actually teaching in your class. And maybe that's outside of what you're assessing. This is another tip that we come up with quite often. I think oftentimes instructors who fear grading, they think that they need to grade the art. And you can't grade art. No, you can't grade art. You can't say Picasso was better than Twyla Tharp. You can't compare people and grade artists in a holistic way. Your grade should be based on what you're teaching and the objectives for your class. And we can communicate to our students, this is what we're looking at here. You've also done this other stuff really well, but in our class, we're really looking at this. So this is what your grade is based on. And that's a really important factor in this whole endeavor as well. One other little trap I think faculty members can fall into when we talk about assessing grading or assessing creative work is that when we sit down to write our criteria out, often the first thing we want to talk about is that incredible piece that that student two years ago did. It was amazing. It was mind-blowing. And it was so good. And students need to see this. And you get into those conversations. And that's fun to talk about with your colleagues. And you pull up that student's work and you talk about how great they were and what they're doing now. Yes, that work should be shared with other students. That's exciting. We have to celebrate those moments. But for the student in the middle of the pack in your class who's kind of struggling, we need to think about what's acceptable. 
that's why it's really important to really focus on that line between what meets expectations and what doesn't meet expectations, because there are some students that just really need to work on that. (laughs) There are others that are going to blast through that and do really great things. But the ones that need our help are usually the ones that are hovering more around that middle area. So we talked a lot about rubrics and grading and evaluation, kind of assuming that we're living in a perfect little world in some ways. But as we all know, right now, in this moment in time, there's a lot of extra stress of COVID-19, protests related to Black Lives Matter, and any numerous other health things that are coming up because of COVID-19, remote learning, (laughs) all of these things. There's lots going on. And so students are under more stress than normal. Students are often under a lot of stress, but this is like extra stress. So in these moments, what are ways that we can help promote creativity and also help our students really feel supported and being able to learn whether they're on this point in the spectrum where they're finding being creative really therapeutic and helpful and all the way to students who just feel like they're frozen because there's so many things going on in the world that they feel like they can't move forward. I think now is a great time to be engaging students in creative process. It's what gets us unfrozen. I'm speaking purely from my location at a community and technical college. If we can get students to engage in those often elective courses outside of their major or area of focus that allow them the opportunity to dive into those things that they are feeling a lot of stress about or anxiety about, it helps students be more successful in those courses that they do have to get through as a matter of course for their program of study. Oh, boy, these are hard times. I think just most immediately from the video, the nurturing the aha moment, I think that it's even more important than ever to break down our projects into small steps and help make those steps really kind of distinct from each other. I think that something that's happening for students now and for us is we're sitting and we're staring at the screen all day long and it can become this big blob of existence where one thing bleeds into the other. And if we can really make those steps a little bit distinct, including a few steps where the students just disengage from all social media and anything online where they can actually be alone without all of the electronic stimulation. I think those are things that can really help nurture their creativity. And also just, I think there's this funny paradox right now that we're all alone, we're all isolated. And yet, if you're sitting there on your TikTok and Instagram and all day long, you're connected and that can be really, really stressful. And so convincing students to take a break from that, telling them we're going through another step now (laughs) and keeping things again, really simple so that they can have that opportunity to use what we're doing in our classes as a springboard to express themselves, encourage them to incorporate what's going on in their own life into the work that we're doing, including examples and acknowledgements of what's going on in the world. Really important. And it's a fine line. I've just talked about this with my co-teacher about how we're going to be discussing Black Lives Matter, the latest George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter protests and the defund the police protests with our students who are mostly from mainland China. Where do we even begin with that discussion? How do we do that without completely stressing them out, but also using it as an opportunity to feed their curiosity and acknowledge their own stress around these issues. So we need to let them know that we're a safe space for everybody to engage and really help them break down things into small packages and celebrate their achievements. And again, let them keep working if they're not quite there yet. Let them do it again. Let them do it again. Let them do it again. I found myself being very forgiving on deadlines. We also have to help faculty realize that they're safe to engage in those redesigns and those conversations. And that comes from at that administrative level, engaging this at a college or institutional level so that you aren't leaving faculty to figure this out on their own. 
At my two colleges, for example, we have this new initiative that will run all the way through next year and actually for the next three years, probably called Equity by Design. And so we're starting with a team comprised of administrators, directors, faculty, helping each other understand what this effort is going to be at a college level. One of the things that you've both emphasized is kind of these small steps. And I think a small step for an expert might be different than a small step for a beginner. Can we just take a minute or two to describe the differences between what an expert might think of as a small step and what might be in practice an actual small step for a student? One thing that we have been engaging in at my colleges is the TILT framework of transparency in learning and teaching by Marianne Winklemiss and her team. Marianne came to one of our colleges in January and actually spoke. And I've been facilitating communities of practice at both colleges on this topic this year. And in that work, there's a realization as faculty review each other's assignments and each other's syllabi that you're not starting at square one, you're actually starting at square five. Because we have to so often take a step outside of our disciplines to realize that, like what you just said, so what's complex or complicated to one student is not for another and vice versa. So that transparency effort helps us to really outline the steps of an assignment, even those small steps. And so I'd encourage any faculty member struggling with whether or not to start at this point or that to review that transparency literature a little bit, to engage with their colleagues, share assignments, and ask their colleagues whether or not they're starting in the right place. That's such a good question, Rebecca. The expert novice thing is just something we grapple with all the time as instructors, especially if we're teaching a new course. Something that I've had to do in my own class, I was just thrown into a very new course for me a couple of years ago. And we did a new project on public service announcements this last semester. And I start something in class. I told the students, you know, choose a topic from this list of public service announcements that you're going to create. And first thing you have to do is do some research. So let's look at some websites. And by having them do that in class and seeing what they come up with, I start to say, oh, <laughs> right. (laughs) They're going to TikTok. You know, they're going to these kind of places I didn't even anticipate. And that allows me to then say, okay, I need to actually really scaffold this down. I don't want this to take two weeks of my time. I want them to find a credible source. And then I ended up giving them a list of basically five places they should look. And you might say that is oversimplifying it. But again, this was just a step in the process of a larger PSA that they needed to make. So I needed to really like clamp that down. But I think if we can have students start in class and actually watch what they do, that gives us a lot of information about how big a step they're willing to take on. And again, the little creative process chart that I put in the video that I created, I think a lot of creative practitioners, people who are really established, they've internalized this process and they even don't even want to put it on the line. They're just like, oh, you bounce around, you know, you go back and forth and it's not a linear thing. And that's not actually helpful to a new student who's really nervous, who's really stressed, who's in school for the first time. They're paying a ton of money to go to art school and their grandparents are really pissed because they should be an accountant. It's intense. And so these students really need things broken down. And I think just an awareness of our own expertise is a good starting point and taking our cues from the students. This has been really interesting. We always wrap up by asking, what's next? What's next, Martin? (laughs) 
what's next for me is to finish this book I'm working on with Cassandra Hori. We've been doing this project together for the past decade or so. I've been making photographs at colleges and universities across the country. We use those photographs that I make in classrooms and faculty teaching to help faculty think about their teaching practice. So we do this form of photo-based teaching consultation. So we're putting those thousands and thousands of photographs together into a, a book, and we're working with the same press that Natasha and I were with, West Virginia University Press, on that book. As far as my other life as an administrator in higher education, what's next is figuring out what fall semester looks like. How are we engaging students? In what space are we engaging them? Are courses going to be offered high flex? We don't know. Are any courses going to be conducted face-to-face? Some of them have to be. You can't teach arc welding at a distance. There's some of that that has to be hands-on. So figuring out exactly how we're engaging students in this next phase is what's next for me. I'm going really micro because it's a really big question. I'm going to keep working on the curriculum for my ESL class. I am now not in faculty development officially anymore at my university in an official role. My current role is that I coordinate and write the curriculum for one level of the English for non-native speakers at the Academy of Art University. And it's exciting. So I'm working on actually integrating more of the anti-racist ecologies. I'm working on incorporating even more creative process readings and practices into my ESL course in the new Zoom world. Also really trying to figure out how to get students' conversation practice in Zoom. That's the really tough one. So I'm very much just kind of (laughs) looking about two feet in front of myself right now. And boy, as far as the bigger issues go, I don't know. Let's let's check in again in the fall. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. This afternoon, I'm going to make a creative genealogy for myself. I'm making a creative family tree because I'm having my students do this next week when we start class. And I want to do it for myself as a sample for them and also just to see what it's like to go through that process. So that's actually been really fun. That's my fun thing that I'm doing. It's all about balance. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been fascinating. I really enjoyed reading through your book and I've enjoyed your contribution to the pedagogies of care. And it's been really great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. John and Rebecca, it's a really fun conversation. Thanks so much for inviting us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.